This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang and the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get cork in the club, what? Everyone, please observe. The bass and seatbelt and no smoking signs have been turned on. Sit back and enjoy your Are we living in the Matrix? Well, some of the biggest tech billionaires are saying it's a little bit possible. So, at least two of Silicon Valley's tech billionaires are pouring money into efforts to break humans out of the simulation that they believe that it is living in according to a new report. Something wrong, man? You look a little whiter than usual. You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Mm, All the time. I don't know if it's really important to address the question um, if what you think is real is actually real. But I think it's a question that most of us ask ourselves at some point and it can be really disturbing. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. You're already living in the past. You're living quite a bit in the past, probably about half a second in the past, because that's how long it takes for your brain to take all these different signals and synchronize them up so that you can have this unified perception of what just happened. It is very possible that uh, the technique which is shown in Matrix can be developed. It is theoretically possible. The Matrix idea is really it's kind of an updated version of Descartes' evil demon hypothesis. In the 21st century, we ask, how do you know you're not living in a simulation? It's another way of raising the question, how do we know anything at all? I imagine... 
that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole? You could see that. Hello and welcome to Science Sish. We are back with a bang for season, I think, is it season two? Feels like we've done more than that. It feels but, like season three, doesn't it? It does, but I think it's season two. Do you I know think what? That's the richness of, of the content, I think. Yeah, it's how drawn out season <laughs> one was and scattered through time. It's obviously great to be back. I'm joined, as ever, by Dr. Michael Brooks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, good. Pleased to be back. Over the moon, to didn't, use a cliche. Didn't enjoy the pause very much there, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, as... Obviously, as loyal listeners, uh, dedicated fans of the podcast, you know, uh, we look at the science in fiction, ask three questions about it. In this episode, the first one uh, of season two, we're looking at The Matrix. Very, very fine film. Made in 1999, which made me feel horribly old. <laughs> I was like, that must have been sort of late, like like 2008, maybe? No, it's a long time ago, wasn't it? A long and, and, time ago. And you can see how influential it's been, though, when you look at the special effects and the way people use them now. You know, so much of it derives from The Matrix. It was an amazing, amazing innovation. Yeah, yeah do you remember how wowed you were? <laughs> yeah, it's like they can't, they can't have done that. Yeah. How have they slowed those bullets down? Yeah. How can they be that good at making a film and still have got Keanu Reeves? Well, that's that's mean. Yeah, a little bit mean. Uh, so, do you want to do a rundown of the of the plot of the Matrix, or shall I? I mean, I feel like most people will know it, but yeah, if you don't know it, just go away and watch it, and then come back because we're going to ruin it for you. Otherwise, okay. So we'll just have a pause for two hours, and then we'll be back. Right, you're back. Yeah, they're back. I think we should do a very brief summation without giving too much away Keanu Reeves is cast as Thomas Anderson aka Neo he's a computer programmer by day and a hacker by night he feels like something isn't quite right but he doesn't know what it is and then he gets contacted by Morpheus Lawrence Fishburne who says you're right there is something up Uh, and the thing that's up is actually uh, the human race has been enslaved by machines and we're all just kind of like human batteries powering machines and the reason we don't realise that is because we're plugged into a computer uh, generating this incredible reality that we see uh, the Matrix at which point uh, we all think holy shit what if that's how it really is that's exactly what you do yeah (laughs) Um, and actually it's surprisingly hard to prove to yourself that that isn't the case yeah yeah. So this is a kind of old, old sort of philosophical question. Yeah. Um, first posed by Descartes. Yes. When he kind of said, uh, we could just, just after be... he said, I think, therefore I am. Yeah, and he's like, but hang on. In a simulation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't he use the word simulation? He was more of the <laughs> mind it could be an evil demon. But the more recently, um, the, the brain in a vat thing has been uh, gone into by a philosopher. Um, tell me about it. <laughs> so this is in the in the 1980s you know this idea is just that you know somebody said you know what what if you are just a brain in a vat and they didn't sort of worry about where the brain came from or anything like that but they said you know could you tell that's the difference mm-hmm. that's the big question is can you tell if everything around you is simulated from your brain that's stuck in a vat or are you actually real and your body is real and then it sort of just raises the question of what 
do you mean by real, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's, that's where we go. It's like, well, you know, I can talk about the physics of, you know, solid things, but I know that they're not actually solid. I know most of what we call is solid, solid is empty space. You know, that's just physics. Mm. And then you get down and everything's actually energy rather than matter. So, so I think this is a really interesting thing all the way down. W- would it matter if we are in a simulation, as long as we're enjoying ourselves? As long as we don't ask too many questions about it, you know, and just sort of get on with your life. Or actually, should you rebel against it? You know, what's Neo's motivation for wanting to break out of the simulation? Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can be what? Be real? It's going into replication. Hey, Bach, it's still nothing. Let's go. Let's go. Tank, we're going to need a signal soon. We got a fibrillation. Hey, Park, location. Targeting almost there. It's going into arrest. <laughs> Lock, I got him. Now, Tank, now. We're going we're gonna to talk more about the simulated universe stuff later, Michael. Okay, I'll um, try and hold but, back. Uh, yeah, if you would. Uh, our first question has to be about bullet time. Bullet time is the name given to the effect in the film where Neo... Uh, is being shot at by uh, the evil agents who are just themselves computer programs. That's right, isn't it? And so they're shooting at him and the bullets appear, from our observer's perspective, to be moving very slowly, but then Neo is reacting in kind of normal time. So the the assumption is that he's seeing it in slow motion but able to react. Yeah. um, So it's like he's got super fast reactions, effectively, and they've slowed the whole thing down for us to be able to see his reactions. Yes, exactly. So he's reacting much more quickly than a regular human would be able to. And so it's interesting, I think, uh, to ponder whether we would ever be able to do that. But before we get to that... Let's talk a little bit about time itself and more specifically how our brain perceives time and constructs time. And we put that to Stanford University neuroscientist Professor David Eagleman. So it turns out that time is not one thing to the human brain, but there are all kinds of aspects to time. What the brain does is it stitches all of these different aspects together, but there's no single clock in the brain that's merely recording time the way that we think of our video cameras doing that. So just as an example, if I go and knock on a door and I see that and I hear it and I feel it at the same time, those signals are actually coming to my brain at very different times. So the the sound from the knock gets processed by my brain very rapidly because sound can get processed quickly because it's a it's a simple signal the sight of my fist knocking on the door takes longer for my brain to process even though the speed of light is faster than the speed of sound inside the brain it takes a longer time to process because vision is more complicated and then i'm feeling the knock also but that takes a long time that has to go up my arm and up my spinal cord into my brain So what happens is the brain goes through a lot of work to synchronize these, to make them seem 
as though they are simultaneous. But this is all essentially a video editing trick that the brain pulls off. And the consequence, this is what I've shown in, in a number of experiments over the years, is that the only way for the brain to do this is that we live in the past. So by the time you think the moment now occurs, when you do that knock and you see it and you hear it and you feel it, and you think, oh, now just occurred. In fact, you're already living in the past. You're living quite a bit in the past, probably about half a second in the past, because that's how long it takes for your brain to take all these different signals and synchronize them up so that you can have this unified perception of what just happened. So that makes my head spin a little bit in the past, obviously. So what Professor Eagleman is saying is that we're living half a second in the past because our brain needs the time to assemble the various bits of sensory information and kind of put them together into like a coherent vision, or not just vision, a, a coherent yeah, picture. Yeah, it, it, it sort of picture. describes a moment, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like sound, vision, everything, senses come in, and that actually takes some processing time. So if I say now... Actually, you don't get that until just after I've said it, effectively. But I don't realise that. No. And and I guess that actually, if everyone is living half a second in the past, then it's it sort kind of, all right, of doesn't it? really make much difference. The brain is sort of, sort of like saying, it's roughly like this, it's, this is what's happening. You know, you're, you're basically trying to keep up with all the sensory information that's coming in, and it's not worth the brain processing it all thoroughly. So no. we just do a whole approximation. Yeah, and, and like, you know, simultaneity you're kind of, I guess, just... I mean, I don't know where the brain first gets the idea to, to start stitching these things together, whether that's innate. That, it's that evolution, not... isn't it? So, so we had to understand cause and effect mm. in order to understand how to be agents in the world, how to mm. feed ourselves effectively. Mm. And we, you know, we started to read stuff into everything. So when we were living you know, out on the savannah or whatever, if there was like a rustling from a bush, we'd assume that something caused that rustling. And, you know, and it wasn't just the wind. Because otherwise, yeah. if it's a tiger or whatever, it's going to jump out and eat you. So you just have to always be aware of, you know, cause and effect of this environment. Otherwise, you won't stay alive. You wouldn't want to live too far in the past then, either, would you? You wouldn't want the brain to be taking it to be sluggish. No. no. Because otherwise, you're living two seconds in the past. Yeah. And the tiger's only living like a quarter of a second <laughs> yeah. in the past and it's agile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it's, yeah, yeah, it is the kind of evolutionary arms race, isn't mm. it? To be able to process quickly. And, I mean, you can see it when you catch a fly or you can't catch a fly. It must be like bullet time for them, effectively, when flies, I'm reaching out. Flies are effectively always living in bullet time. Yeah. Because flies are taking like four times as many snapshots of the world than we are. Yeah. So when it sees a newspaper, for us, like moving very rapidly towards it, it's just like, ugh, the slow-moving <laughs> newspaper I suppose again. I better yeah. get up. But what's interesting about it is that there's quite a lot of information coming in. So the fly, even though the fly is basically an idiot, it, it can also process that information quickly enough. So it's not like having any great sort of philosophical thoughts, probably, a fly, <laughs> but it can make good decisions really yeah. quickly. Instinctive, isn't it? Yeah. It, well, if it sees movement, it, you, it gets Well, no, out the not way. quite instinctive. I think it is still processing the information and deciding to get out of the way very quickly. I don't know. Well, I mean, get in touch with us. With, uh, get in touch with us if you know whether flies are thinking. We'll just cut that or, whole fly thing or, out. Uh, I like, I like the we fly went, thing. Went down a dead end there, didn't we? <laughs> Exposed the limits that of our ignorance. Flies are neo. 
yeah, yeah. That's right. That, that's Neo is, is like the, the classic blue bottle. Yes, that, that's exactly right. In a leather coat. I'd love to see a fly in a leather coat, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Time is a very difficult thing to pin down. There's a famous saying of St. Augustine of Hippo that when he was asked, what is time? He said, I know what it is, but when you ask me, I don't. Is time an illusion? Yes, absolutely. Justify that, please. Well, for a start, if you look at general relativity, special relativity, you kind of see... Every day, mate. Yeah, of course you do. You can see that time is completely malleable. It depends on how you're moving through the universe. So so my perception of time, if I'm on a spaceship flying away from Earth, will be different to yours. But not just my perception of time. The actual biological clocks inside of me, in my cells, in my brain, whatever, they run slower. And if you want to go even more fundamental, you go to quantum physics, which describes you know, how everything happens on a really fundamental level. And it doesn't have time in it. You can't ever say, you know, what is the time for this particle to do this or that? It just doesn't happen. You can't even measure time from a particle's perspective. So, so time is not fundamental. Time is a kind of emergent phenomenon in the universe. So there's no time at a quantum level? No. Hmm. This, is your, this is your area, isn't yeah, it, quantum? Yeah, yeah. And so this is when does the... it when does it drop out then? <laughs> How small do I have to get? Well, I mean, it, it sort of depends on whether you're interacting with the you know the, the macro world effectively. But if you just got a quantum system in isolation, you cannot say how long did that thing take to do that. It just it's not it's nonsensical. It won't come out of the equations of quantum theory because there's no measure of time in there. Hmm. Time's not what they call an observable. Right. So a photon, which is traveling the speed of doesn't light, doesn't experience time. Doesn't have any experience of time. Do not ask a photon what the time is. don't think it was likely that I was going to. Time is an illusion that we somehow experience. So that's interesting because what uh, Professor David is saying is that time isn't a singular thing either. It's a kind of gathering together of lots of different things. So it's a very complex cognitive process. Yeah. And because it's a cognitive process, there is a bit of room for manoeuvre. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realise the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. One of the things we've discovered in the lab is that time perception is extremely subject to distortions and illusions. So, for example, we've been very interested in what can make something seem like it lasts a longer or shorter time. So, for example, when you first look over at a clock on the wall, it will often look like the second hand is stuck for just a moment. This is called the stopped clock illusion. We spent a lot of time investigating this, and it turns out it's because the duration of the second hand moving changes as you get used to it. In other words, when your brain is used to a sequence, pop, 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 the subsequent ones in the sequence start to appear shorter. So it's not that the first one is longer, it's that the subsequent ones appear shorter because your brain already knows what to expect. And a lot of time perception has to do with predictability. 
So for example, if I were to show you a picture on the screen, so I flash this picture at you, and then I flash the same picture at you, and I flash the same picture at you again, and then again, the first time you see it will seem to last much longer than subsequent times that you see it. On the other hand, if I flash a new picture every single time, they'll all seem to last the same amount of time. The reason being that uh, your brain is, is putting an equal effort into looking at each one. So what we found is that the amount of energy that your brain puts into understanding what it's seeing is proportional to how long it seems to have lasted. So the more effort your brain needs to put into to say, okay, this is what I'm seeing, it seems to last longer. And once your brain gets it and says, okay, I know what's out there, then it seems to last a shorter time. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So Professor David is saying that the duration, the perceived duration of an event will depend on the nature of the event. So yeah. if it is a surprising event, then I will think it lasts longer. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, so you know this from your experience, don't you? If you're asked to, to sort of say how long that lasted and it's a novel event and you've never experienced it before, it feels like it lasts a long time. Whereas mm. once you get used to stuff, it sort of doesn't feel like it lasts so long. Yeah, because I think I've read that this accounts for why, like, your a childhood summer will seem to have gone on forever because there's yeah. so much novelty. Yeah. But then when you're old, there's no novelty, and so everything just, <laughs> just, above, just, yeah, just, just passes really yeah. quickly. Yeah. But but also, it's not just about surprise or novelty, is it? So if if like the the stimulus is even if it's just bigger, I think then you'll think it's lasted longer. So if yeah. you have like small little pinpricks of light and then one massive one and then small little pinpricks of light you'll think that the big one oh, but that's also I suppose that's also novel so maybe that's the same thing oh, I don't know is that the same thing time is an illusion yeah okay just keep <laughs> yeah just keep saying that <laughs> and then we're fine um, I think it's that the there's a proportional relationship between the amount of energy that is required by your brain to store the sensory information from yeah. a stimulus so if we've got a load of data then we look back at it and think, well, that must have, yeah, that must have lasted. Or is actually we just sort of recorded it in high definition, effectively. Yeah, yeah. And this is actually what Professor David tried to kind of investigate experimentally, and then account for why people sometimes say that their life has gone in slow motion in, in kind of um, oh, yeah. situations yeah. of high danger. So I watched The Matrix where things move in slow motion when something that's high adrenaline is happening. And that got me thinking a lot about this issue that people report this commonly. When they were in some kind of high adrenaline situation, they often report that time seems to move in slow motion. And this is something that had happened to me when I was a kid. I fell off of the roof of a house. And fell 12 and a half feet and broke my nose on the floor below. And it seemed to have taken a very long time to fall. 
And I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland and how this must have been what it was like for her when she fell down the rabbit hole. And when I grew a little older, I took high school physics and I calculated how long the fall actually took and it was 0.8 of a second. And I couldn't reconcile that. I couldn't figure out why it seemed to have taken so long. So when I grew up, I became a neuroscientist and I tried to understand this issue. So what I found is that no one had ever done an experiment like this. And, and the reason was obvious. You can't take volunteer subjects and stick them in an extremely scary, life-threatening situation. And it turns out that's what is required. And the reason I know this is because I took my whole lab to the amusement park and we went on the scariest rides. We went on the roller coasters and the um, uh, various things that spun you around rapidly and so on. And we took our stopwatches and all our equipment and tried everything out, but we couldn't actually induce this time distortion. The reason why it turned out is because nothing was scary enough. You know, the, the rides were, were thrilling and fun, but they didn't really make you feel like your life was in danger. And at this point, I had collected up about 100 stories, narratives from people who were explaining what had happened to them when they seemed to see in slow motion, like bullet time. And, you know, they would say, look, I was in this car accident and I watched the hood crumple and I watched the rear view mirror fall off and I watched the face of the other driver and so on. And, and I realized, you know, the thing that was um, across all these stories, including my fall from the roof, was that people really felt like their life was in danger. So I had to find something scarier than what was going on at the amusement park. So with my graduate student, Chess Stetson, we looked around and we finally found something called SCAD diving, which stands for suspended catch air device. It is a tower that's 150 feet high. You go up to the very top of this tower and then you are dropped in free fall facing backwards and you fall through the air for three seconds until you're caught in a net below and you're going 70 miles an hour by the time you hit the net. And it is so terrifying because you it goes against every Darwinian instinct you have to fall backwards like this from very, very high in the air. So what we did is we got a number of subjects to do this uh, experiment, and we developed something that we call the perceptual chronometer. In other words, a way of measuring time perceptually. So the way this works is it flashes numbers at you in, in such a way that we can measure the speed at which you are taking in information. So in other words, we can finally assess this question of, can you see in slow motion when you're terrified? And here's what we found. When we drop people from the tower, the first part of the experiment is we have people estimate how long that event was. So they use a stopwatch afterwards to think about from the time they were released to the time they hit the net. Then we have them watch somebody else's fall, and then they estimate again on the stopwatch from the time that person was released to the time they hit the net. And what we found is that there is a time dilation. In other words, with your own fall, you believe that it took much longer than when you're watching someone else do the fall. Okay, so we know that we could capture this effect where people think it took a long time, but the question is, are they actually seeing in slow motion like Neo in the Matrix? 
And the answer, we ran 23 subjects. The answer is no. People actually see at the same speed in terms of information coming in that they see during a ground-based control. And so this was very surprising to me. I, I had actually expected the other result. But what I realized is there's a trick of memory going on here. So when you're in a very scary situation, what happens is you're not laying down memories just with the normal pathways in the brain, but there's a second system that's uh, underpinned by a part of the brain called the amygdala, which kicks into gear when you're in an emergency situation and essentially lays down memory on a secondary memory track. So what happens is when you're saying, what just happened, what just happened, what just happened, you have a much denser stream of memories than you normally have. And as a result, your brain interprets that as having lasted a longer time. So for better or worse, we don't actually experience bullet time as in the matrix in the sense that we're not seeing in slow motion. Instead, it's retrospective. When you read out the situation, you say it must have lasted a long time because of all the memory that you have about it. Okay. So that I really like this experiment that Professor David has done. And I read about it and I thought about it quite a lot over the weekend. I can hear a but coming. Yeah. The, no, there is, there, there is a but because I think... Like, I totally buy that that thing of, oh, it's just a, it's like an iffy memory. So you're, you're looking back and you're going, oh, I've, I've, I've taken in um, this high-density data, and if I've taken in that amount of high-density data, then it must have taken longer than it did. But what he's looked at is just whether people are saying that they think that the duration of the event was longer, as opposed to saying to them, did you feel during the fall that time was was moving in, in slow motion. And if you look at those, what people say about estimated durations, they kind of say that they've gone up by like between like 10 and 50% or something. Right, yeah. But when yeah. people talk about these experiences, you know, during a car crash or or like in in, in a fall, um, you know, off a, off a cliff or whatever, mm. a genuinely unexpected, dangerous, surprising event, then people will talk about time slowing down like by a hundredfold, like totally... Yeah, but they're just yeah. not even on the same yeah. scale. Yeah. So I think there is a difference. So I'd be really fascinated to know what, if anything, any of his subjects said about the fall. The other thing about the fall is, yeah, I don't want to drop off a 15-story platform, but I know that I'm about to drop off a 15-story platform. To do I've it. chosen to do it. Right. Like, Professor David has convinced me to do it. It's not... As life-threatening as like when you as, fell off the as roof, as when you, you you fall off a roof. And you if know, you're I, genuinely frightened, a, yeah, and and in a life-threatening situation, which none of those students who did that drop, mm. no, none of them were in a life-threatening no. situation no. actually, and they kind of knew that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking you could actually just people who are walking along cliff tops push them off. Mm. You have somebody with a trampoline down below. Are uh, you slip a sexual chronometer onto their <laughs> wrist? Oh, you do that, you get a magician. Oh like, yeah, he's got a handshake. Yeah he, yeah, he puts the the thing on. Yeah, quite hard actually during the fall to let them know and just have a look at the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know you're terrified, but just see <laughs> see what's going on on the chronometer oh. for me. <laughs> the ancient Chinese based kung fu on the movements of animals and the elements. They saw in nature 
the strength of the bear, the grace of the cat, the speed of the snake. They observed how effortlessly the animals moved, and by imitating them, they improved their strength, balance, and coordination. Another absolutely ideal thing in The Matrix is when Neo is getting trained. He gets plugged in and then they just get out like all of the martial arts programs and just download them straight into his head. (laughs) And I think everyone watches that and goes, God, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Could we ever have instant learning? Could we ever just download Kung Fu into our heads? So first of all, uh, Dr. Michael Brooks, what is learning? Well, what a good question. Nobody really knows, to be honest. <laughs> but learning is something where you change the physical structure of your brain. So we, we know this from experiments done by a guy called Eric Kandel, who actually won a Nobel Prize for his work on sea slug learning. And you could see that the neurons, the connections between neurons were changing as it learned to do things. So we think that learning is about changing the physiology of the brain, creating new connections between neurons, And it happens in lots and lots of different ways in the brain, in lots of different areas. Nobody's really pinned down exactly what constitutes learning. So if you want to have a Kung Fu program, you'd have to know exactly what that brain that knows Kung Fu needs to look like and change it physically to look like that. But then that, weirdly, doesn't sound entirely implausible or or impossible because I'm just looking for the neural patterns of a Kung Fu master yeah, I'm, I'm noting those just, down. I'm just yeah. looking. I'm noting. Yeah, bear with you. I'm noting those down. Paper yeah. I'll just note those down. Yeah, note those down. We're talking billions and, then, and billions of neurons. Yes, fine. Yeah, but that's just a that's just a problem for you know. I mean, you just get a clever computer on it, right? It is complicated. Believe me. No, no, I, I absolutely believe you. But okay, maybe <laughs> kung doable. fu. Maybe kung fu is a bit of a stretch at the moment. But like a simple thing. So if there's a simple kind of process that you were good at no let's make it really so that i was good at and you wanted to learn yeah um like a very like a basic thing where you flick a pile uh, of coasters yeah coasters up i could do that and, already and catch them but let's say that you can't all right i imagine I that the neural pattern for that is not especially complex even though it involves it probably is actually because it's got motor function <laughs> it's not yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, this might not be a great example but it's gonna be simpler than kung fu yeah and we we could measure exactly what my brain, and then loads of other people who could do it, what their brains were doing, yeah. and then come up with a sort of uh, an amalgamation pattern that is what needs to happen in your in your brain. And then all I've got to do is work out how to map that onto your brain, isn't it? Yeah, that is, that is all That's all got I've to got to do. do. Yeah, yeah. So, so why don't we but just get on with it? Interestingly, I can copy you. So, so my brain has evolved to the point where I can see, copy, and learn how to do that fairly quickly, actually. Mm. Uh, something I could probably learn in five minutes. Mm. We haven't got a clue how to how you would sort of even map that in the brain, let alone be able to transfer it from one to the other. So I think we've got quite a long way to go with this. I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic about it, but but learning kung fu is probably not going to be downloadable anytime soon. Mm. All right, so you're saying that I'm not going to become a kung fu expert instantly. I'm saying you're going to have an- to put in the work like everyone else. Annoying. There are nevertheless lots of interesting things going on at the moment in terms of improving learning and training one of them is called decoded neurofeedback and that's something that brown university's professor of cognitive linguistic and psychological sciences takio watanabe knows like the back of his hand 
the subjects are asked to be in an fMRI booth so that their brain activity is measured by fMRI on a real-time basis. And subject brain activity is measured by an experimenter and, and a computer. Subject has no idea of what they are doing except for trying to make the disk size larger upon the experimenter's request. And if subject induces a brain activity, which experimenter would like them to induce, then subject get a positive feedback, like getting a disk larger. And if subject induced brain activity, which is far from what the experimenter would like them to induce, then they got a negative feedback, like getting disk smaller. By doing this many times, subjects actually eventually learned to induce the brain pattern, which that is very close to what the experimenter would like subject to induce. So what Professor Takio is saying is that you're training subjects to replicate a, a like a pattern of brain activation. They don't know what that is or yeah. what it's for, but they, they're getting this feedback by making this disc bigger or smaller so that they're kind of training their brain. But the, but the point is they have no idea what they're doing. No, they don't know how they're doing it. So, so something's happening on the screen in front of them when they get the brain activation right, effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's being fed back to them. So you're able to help them do it better, basically by feeding back the signals from their own mm-hmm. brain. But they don't know that. They have no no clue that they're learning how to do something. It's just mm. they are effectively being input with a signal that helps them learn to do a job better. But they couldn't tell you how to do that job at all. Yeah, and so this is something that Professor Takio and his squad have used for experiments into like visual perception learning. On the first day, we actually measured subject brain activity when a certain oriented stripes are presented. And then on the second day on, subjects are asked to be in an fMRI booth. And then when their brain activity is similar to the activity which was evoked with the presentation of the orientation on the first day, then they got the positive feedback like getting a disc larger. On the other hand, if the brain activity is far from what the experimenter wants, the disc gets smaller. By doing this many times, say one hour a day for a few days, the subjects have learned to induce brain activity that is quite similar to what the experimenter wanted them to induce, namely the brain activity, which was actually evoked with the presentation of the oriented stripes. By repeating uh, the induction of the activity, subject actually improved the sensitivity of that orientation. So that is the first uh, study of visual perceptual learning. The reason why we did this uh, is because we thought that it was easier to get visual perceptual learning, which is very simple. 
Next, we also changed subject's preference on human faces in a positive or negative way by having subject repeatedly induce certain activity patterns in the area called the anterior cingulate. Subject came to like a face better after this neurofeedback training than before. Stop it, Professor Takio. That's naughty, isn't it? <laughs> so you can get people to basically like your face a lot more by just feeding... Get on it, mate. Feeding, yeah, yeah. Some of us need it more than others. You need uh, just to put the signal into their brains and they just give it positive association effectively. Yeah, so you're increasing like sensitivity to it. Because in the, in the stripes example, so they're in a certain orientation, you're getting trained to have your brain in a pattern that recognises those quickly. Yeah. And at the same time, you sort of do this subtle side experiment where you, you manipulate their mind, yeah. manipulate their feelings about something while they're just doing this other task. I mean, that is absolutely mental. It's quite scary, isn't it? It is. And also, like when I feel like if you can do that now, and this is quite a new yeah, and this is only just scientific area, it's not impossible we're going to be doing Kung Fu, mate. Or it's going to turn into some kind of weird Big Brother 1984 thing where we're made to like everything. Yeah, either way, brilliant. <laughs> now, I'm supposed to start with these operation programs first. That's Major Butler and Shed. Let's do something a little more fun. How about combat training? I think it is possible. However, the metrics are very different from what we do. In metrics, uh, for example, Neo got uh, some electrode inserted in his brain. <gasps> oh, shit. Hey, Mikey, I think he likes it. How about some more? Hell yes. But in our case, it's, it's a learning. So this, uh, we don't have any electrode attached or inserted in our brains. But I think um, it is very possible that uh, the technique can be developed. It is theoretically possible. How was he? Ten hours straight. He's a machine. I know Kung Fu. Oh, there we go. Theoretically possible. Oh, we'll take that, won't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, what are our other options for instant learning? Instant learning. Well, you can stimulate your brain using something called transcranial direct current stimulation, which is not instant learning at all. It just gives you better focus, allegedly. Right. But be careful about what claims uh -huh, are made. Uh -huh. So you could argue that that actually will help your brain to learn a bit faster than normal. But the point of that is that I know what I'm learning, don't I? So I'm saying, okay, it's I'm going to learn Kung Fu, uh, and then I'll learn Kung Fu, and I just learn it a bit better because I've got these electrodes in my head. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, the electrode is a nice idea, isn't it? But we're not there yet. No. What about the good old Ray Kurzweil? <laughs> uh, because he's... Uh, Always reliable. Yeah, reliably um, out there with his stuff. I mean, he, he's, he's talked about nanobots, hasn't he? He's mm. talked about, let's not just have like a, a electrode 
inserted, but let's actually fill your brain and your bloodstream with nanobots. And also, I imagine, because he's saying that the nanobots are all connected to the cloud, yeah. and I can have you know, so a, you an, download, an incredibly yeah, yeah. sort of intelligent uh, you know, computer at my disposal to do my thinking for me at a higher rate than... Than everyone around you. Than, than everyone around me. I could also use that, bringing back to my previous point about bullet time, to think more quickly in situations and therefore make it seem like time was moving more slowly. So if I can get... I mean, if we can just work out what these nanobots are, <laughs> uh, what exactly they're nanobots? doing, and uh, how they're connected to the cloud. <laughs> I mean, you'd need good Wi-Fi, I yeah. imagine. How are they getting powered? Yeah, that's not a question anybody likes to answer because there are issues about them just sort of like dead battery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to be so clever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I've just got loads of, sort of dead nanobots swilling around in yeah, my brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, real shame. It's a nice idea. Oh, it's a lovely idea. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill... The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Gordon, Michael, what are you taking, red or blue? I'm taking the red pill. Yeah? yeah. I can't remember which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> which one is that? I just looked it up. Um, it, the red one is gets you out of the simulation. Really? Reality. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Why? Because I would always be aware that I'd been given the choice. No. I think if you take the blue pill, you forget all you about it. You never know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. No, so there's no... Yeah, I agree that it would be very frustrating if they sort of told you and then you had to live your life but without ever actually seeing it. Yeah. But the, the that's not so the you would, So the question is, would I really want to know if this was a simulation? Yeah. Well, I already think it is all a simulation. Oh, so... So... Well, you, you love being right, so I think you would want to see it, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think But so. then, potentially, like in the Matrix setup... It's just a life of misery. <laughs> That's true. It's not good, is it? It's no, it's good really outcome. not good. No, no so maybe uh, I, I actually take the blue pill. Mm. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking blue. Yeah, I knew you would. Yeah. Classically, I'm taking blue. Yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, I, a there's given, a certain amount of curiosity, but not enough for no, me to think. Easy life, always. Yeah. Well, do I want to just carry on being a TV presenter? <laughs> or do I want to be fighting machines? You pretty much machines? have taken the blue pill already. I have, I have. <laughs> I'm very happy with it. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. 
What I'm going to try and do is convince you you're a simulation and that physics can prove it. Many people in Silicon Valley have become obsessed with the simulation hypothesis, the argument that we experience as reality is in fact fabricated in a computer. Right now, we're inside a computer program. Is it really so hard to believe? Imagine one day we have these powerful supercomputers and we really, with fantastic fidelity, can create a universe in silico, if you will, which has sentient beings within it that don't know that they are in a simulation. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Our third and final question, obviously, has to be, is what we think is real actually real? Or is it simulated? Not easy. Not easy by any means. And as explained by New York University and Australian National University philosopher Professor David Chalmers, we aren't the first people to ask this question. Amazingly. I'd say the classical version of this idea was from the 17th century philosopher René Descartes, who in his Meditations on First Philosophy asked the question, how do I know anything at all? You know, I'm normally pretty sure that there's a world around me that I have a body, that I'm using a computer, and so on. But then Descartes asks, well, how do I know? It might be that an evil demon is fooling me into thinking all of this is real, when in fact the demon is just feeding me perceptions and sensations to deceive me. And Descartes used this to suggest that it's a lot harder than we think to know anything about reality. So the Matrix idea is really... As I see it, it's just kind of an updated version of Descartes' evil demon hypothesis. In the, in the 21st century, we ask, how do you know you're not living in a simulation? It's another way of raising the question, how do we know anything at all? We are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and some alteration in our reality occurs we would have the overwhelming impression that we were reliving the present deja vu. So the simulation hypothesis is the hypothesis that we're living in a computer simulation, like the matrix. Um, Maybe my brain is connected up to the simulation the way that Neo's brain is connected in the movie. Interestingly, in the movie, his brain isn't simulated. That's biological. But it could be that the whole universe is simulated, including the brains as well. And then we'd have a complete simulation of the universe. So the simulation hypothesis says that I'm in one of those situations. Everything I experience is coming from a computer simulation. And this is you know, illustrated in science fiction like The Matrix and in you know, science fiction novels for decades before then. I think you know, Isaac Asimov had a version of this. lately some philosophers are starting to be taking this hypothesis seriously. Nick Bostrom has given an argument that he calls the simulation argument that we may well be living in a simulation. And the way it goes is roughly that in the history of the universe, many simulated universes are going to be developed. Almost any intelligent civilization, if it develops long enough, will eventually have the capacity to program computers and create simulated universes, as we do with, you know, video games and virtual worlds. This will just be a souped-up version of that. 
no reason to think it's impossible eventually. So if you start thinking about that, then, well, there's one base-level universe, many, many simulated universes, a certain number of unsimulated beings, potentially hugely more simulated beings, then you start to say, what are the odds that I am one of the few unsimulated beings? And you start to say, well, that's probably probably much more likely, numerically, statistically, that I'm simulated. So that leads one naturally to the conclusion that perhaps it's likely that we are simulated and that the simulation hypothesis is true. Now, maybe there are ways to avoid that conclusion. I mean, Bostrom suggests that, you know, there are other possibilities here. Maybe all the universes, all those intelligent beings will choose not to create simulations, or maybe they'll kill themselves before they ever get to be able to. But at the very least, it looks like there's some reason here to take the hypothesis very seriously. I know what you're thinking. Because right now I'm thinking the same thing. Actually, I've been thinking it ever since I got here. Why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? (sighs) So Nick Bostrom is trying to say that Rick Edwards is more likely to be a simulation than not. Yeah. Well, within... No, hang on, that's not right. Within the simulation hypothesis, that that's more likely. No, I think what he would say to you is that the likelihood is that you are not anything other than something simulated by a more advanced civilization. No, but that's just within the simulation hypothesis because he gives the two other options in the simulation argument, which are also sort of likely. So he says that there's three there's three possibilities, all kind of uh, intelligent races that are, that are moving towards being able to create a simulation of a universe, go extinct before they're able to yeah or they lose interest yeah. in doing those kind of simulations or they do make these simulations and then that's when you say okay if the simulations are running then it is statistically more likely that you'd be a simulation than like the yeah. base level life form because i mean he talks about actually simulations within the simulation yeah because we already make simulations so yeah. we have things like the sims mm-hmm. we have all these virtual realities we have you know games people play where we have characters within those and you can imagine if our technology gets better that those characters within those games will be made to be much more intelligent and eventually you imagine they would actually or could become conscious and therefore they become the subject of this conversation you know do they know that they're just in a simulation or do they think that what's happening to them is real you could imagine them sort of being allowed to go off and do whatever they wanted to do, and they would end up maybe yeah. making a simulation of their own. So you get this nested simulation. And the lower down you are in the nest, yeah. the more problematic that is because your simulating overlords might get bored and turn you off. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, they said, might like run yeah. out of computing power, just be like, ah. Uh, Gotta lose one of the simulations and you get unlucky. <laughs> and you'd never know about it. And and another argument is that actually if we find out about it and we start being conscious of it, then we behave differently and it's not as much fun to watch us anymore. So we mustn't let them know that we've discovered that we live in a simulation. 
No, I reckon this, the simulating overlords would, would quite like it if you got to the point where you realise you're in a simulation. They're like, uh, these guys have got a bit of spunk about them. <laughs> I've done quite well. I've created my creations. Yeah. have realised that they're just creations. Yeah, Let's I go think to you'd level feel, two. Yeah, that is. That feels like level two. It feels really good. It feels like a positive. I don't think they're right. turning it so, off. Though. Okay, they won't turn it off. That's no, good. I think that's fine. So we're safe to talk about it. Yes, I, I think probably are. Do you believe I think it? it? Kind of no, and. I think the reason I don't is that there's such a colossal leap to to go from our virtual reality at the moment to conscious beings within a reality when we don't really understand consciousness. See, I don't think it's a huge leap. You don't at all. think that's a no, huge leap? No. I think I, that's pretty big. No, for me it's actually quite a small leap. Really? I yeah, I think I do believe in the simulation argument. I I believe that the likelihood is that we are being controlled by a more advanced civilization, mm. and they are effectively gods. Then, yeah, 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 because they they can control the, like the the laws of physics if they want to. They can change they can the laws of physics. They set them up in the first yeah. place, so they can do what they want to. It just seems plausible to me. I've blown your mind. Rick. Well, I'm just I'm wondering. So, if you're running this simulation, you're doing it. It's like an ancestral simulation, so it's us. You can very easily imagine us going, oh, we don't really understand the origin of life. Yeah. It'd be great to set up yeah. a simulation and then watch it play out and, and see And of course we've done that with you know, basic computer programs, yeah. watched evolution happen. Yeah, yeah. so it, it would make absolute sense that we would try and do that. Yeah. And that is why you assume then that the people who are doing it, yeah. people in inverted commas, <laughs> would probably be some sort of humans or like post-humans when they're like super intelligent. Yeah. Able yeah. To, because otherwise they'd be running a simulation to look at another life form. So they're probably not aliens. No. But in terms of just like computing power and how much it's going to how much it's going to take to run a simulation of this kind of magnitude and complexity. So if we were doing this, you wouldn't bother putting in the level of detail of the rest of the universe, would you? You'd just kind of You'd basically go right. You'd fudge it, um, wouldn't you? I, yeah, I, I'll yeah. have this this area that yeah. my humans I'm studying are in, yeah. or my human simulations are in, and then everywhere else, you basically you, you just wait. And if they if they look over, they like right quick, you put quick, something in there, make, make yeah. that bit good. Yeah. But the rest of the time, hence, you just have it running. Hence being the sort anomalies of, in physics, the things that don't quite add up, the glitches in the matrix, the glitches in the matrix. So, for instance, like you've got limited computing power. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you can't do infinite resolution on anything that you see so you get a kind of pixelation to the mm. universe which we know probably exists and that's like the quantum level effectively mm-hmm. so we we assume that the, the there is a quantum level to the universe where you know there's a certain amount of information but not an infinite amount and so you can argue that that fits in well with the simulation argument mm-hmm. and then people talk about the uncertainty principle in physics where the heisenberg uncertainty principle where you can't know to certain things together at the same time there's always the more you know about one the, the, the less, less you know, know about, about the other, other yeah. as another way of sort of you know programming the universe so that you know you don't have to use infinite resources mm. mm-hmm. i'm just saying if you were a conspiracy theorist you could find support for this yeah it does all seem slightly i don't know like a little bit wishy-washy and i and i am not the only one who thinks that I don't know if it's really important to address the question um, if what you think is real is actually real, but I think it's a question that most of us ask ourselves at some point, and it can be really disturbing. So this is the Nordic Institute for Theoretical Physics's Professor Sabine Hossenfelder, and suffice to say, 
she is not the biggest fan of Bostrom's simulation argument. Well, the uh, the argument that Bostrom uh, leads on the paper um, is very slim. And I'm someone who works uh, in um, the foundations of physics. Uh, we deal a lot with uh, the laws of nature. And um, if you're trying to make something uh, like the idea in, the, in Bostrom's paper work, that we live in a computer simulation, and not only that, but that there might be nested computer simulation, simulation and a simulation and a simulation and a simulation, you have to think about what kind of fundamental law can possibly support such an idea. And that's not easy. I mean, we uh, what we do when we build a, a particle collider and uh, we hit together protons at almost the speed of light is that we probe uh, the nature of reality at very, very short distances. So what you do if you build a, a computer and you run a simulation on this is you take a tiny little piece of the universe uh, and you try to reproduce something uh, that looks like that universe. Okay, and uh, now, um, since you've taken only part of the universe that you started with, you basically have uh, less bits to encode the information. Now, you can quickly see how you are running into a problem with that. When you, you take a piece of a larger thing and try to reproduce something that is as good as the larger thing, and now you iterate this because you have these nested simulations, simulation, simulation, and simulation, at some point you start decoding what we think are the fundamental laws of nature. And it just doesn't work. You can't, you can't push this forever. And that, that's only one part of the problem. The other uh, part of the problem is that nobody has actually managed to find a way that a computer could encode something like our universe without running into conflict with um, certain properties that we know the laws of nature do have. It's, it's not trivial, okay? I'm not saying it can't be done. Maybe it can be done, but I don't know how. And, and the paper doesn't address it one way or the other. It's just silent on the question. So according to Professor Sabine, computer most likely says no. So is it all just a waste of time then? Professor David again. Well, I don't know that the simulation hypothesis is true. You know, I think it's just a, for me, it's just a hypothesis and a possibility. But it's very interesting to think about what would follow if it is true. For example, if we are in a simulation, then we do have some kind of godlike creature. But the biggest question is, if we are in a simulation, is anything real or is it all an illusion? And the traditional view is, no, everything would be an illusion. Nothing is real. My own view is if we're in a simulation, the world is still perfectly real. It's just we live in a computational universe. So there are still trees out there. There are still tables and chairs. They're all, if you like, just made of information. It's not that the world's in illusion. It's just the world has a different underlying nature. I've been thinking about that a lot. I think it connects to some really interesting ideas in physics about the possibility that, you know, the entities of physics might be fundamentally grounded in information. I think it can shed light on virtual reality. People are starting to use virtual reality devices now more and more, and some people treat that as, you know, an illusion or a what William Gibson called a consensual hallucination. But my view is that, you know, virtual reality is actually a 
perfectly real sort of reality. It's just a digital one. I think that has lots of consequences. I like that from Professor David. I'm, I like in, I'm into that, yeah. Yeah, that thing of, okay, Whatever. fine, we're in a simulation. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not real, it just means it's... Uh, this is our reality. nature is different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm happy with that. That's your answer. This is my reality. Blue pill, please. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can... Um, do a quick summation of our of our three questions and answers. The first question, could we ever have bullet time? I'm saying yes. Uh, well, flies definitely have it anyway. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's flies have it. Flies are in it. I think that people in certain situations experience it. And, and you want and Professor David to go back I and want do Professor his work David again. I want to go and do another experiment slightly differently. And I think you'll find that the, the what is happening is the brain is sort of kicking into a higher gear and working more quickly and okay. therefore it feels like time has slowed down. Exactly bullet time. And then the second question was, could we ever instantly learn anything like Kung Fu or a language? And you're sceptical about this, Nanobots you? in the brain. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, you don't want nanobots in the brain. I don't think it's going to come to nanobots in the brain necessarily. I think it could be... You can have a, like a jack um, plug in the back of your the, head. No, exactly as uh, Professor Takio said. You don't need to have the jack plug in. It's just, you know, there's there's an electro monitoring what's going on in your head, but it's not in in your brain, which I prefer. Um, and we just need to work out the appropriate mappings. Yeah, that's all we need not, to do. I remember, all we need I remember to you do. used the word yeah. just before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, people are getting on it. And then the third question, are we living in a simulation? <sighs> yeah. I mean, there is... There is a possibility yes, we are. that we are living in a simulation. High probability. I still, I still maintain that that leap from where we're at to programming conscious beings uh, is pretty big. Not that big. W- what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Sanderson. The assistant producer was Cormac McAuliffe, with sound design by Ivor Manley. This episode featured Professor David Eagleman, Professor Takio Watanabe, Professor David Chalmers, and Professor Sabine Hossenfeld. <laughs> yeah, nailed it in five. <laughs>